in a world that is full of color, I would think that color affected the psychology, but it, color doesn't all, only affect psychology. It also affects our neurology because as human, obviously our neurology and psychology are interconnected and we are interconnected also to colors because we are, even if we don't notice it or a lot of people don't pay attention, we live in an ocean filled with colors. I'm David Kepron, and this is Next Level Experience Design. On my first day of the freehand drawing studio at McGill University School of Architecture, the teacher, Jerry Tondino, explained that he would not teach us how to draw. Instead, he said, he would teach us how to see, to understand light, and how without light nothing exists, how it created form and texture and color. I loved those classes, where every week for three hours we would learn to see. I took additional drawing classes in the evenings and sketching school in the summer, where we would travel to some location and spend a week drawing outdoors. And learn to see I did. Jerry Tondino fostered my love of drawing with his gentle teaching approach. He would walk the studio in his well-worn jean jacket saying, now put a line at the top of the paper, now put another line at the bottom, now draw the figure. And then 30 seconds later, he would say it again, and then again, and again. It was as if the three-hour studio seemed to go by in 30-second increments as we learned to see. Mostly, we worked in black and white, charcoal on newsprint paper. Color would come later. Color had its own challenges, and understanding color was tough. Understanding color was this process that went on for years. Even now, in my recent paintings, color is a challenge, but one that I take on with enthusiasm. What color goes with what other color? How does one color seemingly change the hue of another simply by being adjacent or surrounding it? How is light reflected off of one object coloring another? Are they warm or cool, saturated, transparent, or opaque? I love color. Fuchsia, particularly. To me, it's a vibrant, alive color that seems to signal enthusiasm and creative innovation. And then there's the understanding of color from the neurobiological point of view. How our brain processes color is fascinating. The eyes take in wavelengths of light, activating rods and cones in our eyes and sending signals down to the occipital lobe in the back of our head, and the information is somehow turned into our perception of color. And that's the simplest description that there ever has been about how color works in the brain. The other thing about color, especially when we start thinking about objects as being colored, is that that's not actually what's happening. Our human eyes are actually able to only see a very small portion of the full light wavelength spectrum. And some animals are able to see light in the infrared field where we can't. These wavelengths still enter our eyes, but our visual apparatus isn't able to see them. When full sunlight hits objects, a certain portion of that visual light spectrum is absorbed into the molecular structure of the object. The remaining wavelengths of light are reflected off and are perceived by our eyes and decoded in our brain as color. So when we see, what we're really doing is seeing reflected light. 
So if you look at a red t-shirt, for example, all of the wavelengths except those that are perceived as red are absorbed by the fabric and the pigments, and the red wavelengths are bouncing off and entering our eyes, and voila, red shirt. But it's oh so much more complex than that. And what about how certain colors make us feel? Colors affect mood. Our neurology and colors are interconnected, and there's a heft of science that describes the very real relationship of color to our emotional state. Colors activate our neurobiology and can be calming or activating, agitating, or a lot of other emotions that we connect to color. And they directly affect the way we feel in places that we inhabit. So next time you're out anywhere, outside your home or in your home or in a store or driving on the highway, Take notice of all of the colors. Everything is colored. Most everything we buy is colored, and the shade of red or yellow or blue really matters to our perception of the product, our willingness to buy it, and the brand or store that sells it. Colors have become so connected to our consumer environments that we have come to attribute certain colors to certain brands. If I say Tiffany, you're likely to, in your mind's eye, have this idea of this robin's egg blue. Or red, you might think of Coke or Target. Yellow, you might think of the golden arches of McDonald's or Best Buy. In addition to these things, there's the psychological connotations of color, or how color is understood by certain cultures. For example, red is a popular color in Chinese culture, symbolizing luck, joy, or happiness. And purple was linked to royalty or the Christian church, mainly because making the color purple came from crushing seashells, and that process was difficult and took a long time. And then we can think about what color means or what colors will be prevalent next year, and how are colors tied to human experience, economics, and political movements. Color. There's more here than we can unpack in one podcast, but it's worth understanding because so much of our human experience is connected to it. To help us get there is Montaha Hidefi. She's an internationally distinguished color archaeologist who develops color trend concepts and color palettes for organizations all around the world. Montaha is the vice president of color forecasting at the Color Marketing Group and the vice president of the Canadian Freelance Guild. By creating color forecasts designed specifically to a company's target markets, Montaha Hedefi helps organizations optimize their product portfolio and create stories that the brand's target audiences can understand and relate to. The ideation of a company's color direction is done by examining past and current colors, understanding present trends, and setting new parameters based on research and scientific forecasting processes. I'd love the idea of being a color archaeologist. And Montaha Hidefi aptly uses that metaphor to describe what she does. Montaha has presented at conferences and trade shows all around the world. She's an author of Groping for Truth, My Uphill Struggle for Respect, and co-author of Color Design, Theories and Applications in the First and Second Editions. From a very young age growing up in Venezuela, Montaja has had a love affair with all things colored. She feels so interconnected with color that she explains that color and her are like talking about the same thing. And with that, I welcome Montaja Hidefi to the Next Love Experience Design podcast. Hey, to Canadian folks living up in Guelph, Ontario, how are you? 
Hey, David, I'm good. How about you? Fantastic. So I know you just told me that you have snow still in Canada, and I'm staring out my window and the lovely state of Maryland. I think it's 70 degrees and sunny here. So not to rub it in, I am an ex-Montrealer. So every time I get away from snow, it's always slightly better, you know. But, uh, you know, is it still really freezing cold up there? It is cold. I mean, Canada is cold until, I don't know, April, yeah. June. Um, no, not June, May. And But then you have the wonderful summers in Canada. And, of course, autumn, you know, where it's beautiful and warm and the trees are all changing color and it's magnificent. It's true, but we have amazing nature, you know, in the summertime, it's it's just wonderful to to go across Canada, whether the Maritimes or the West Coast, or even in, in the middle here in Ontario or in Quebec. Mm. It's just beautiful. It's amazing. The colors, the greenery, the, the lakes, you know, that we have a lot of lakes in Canada. So I was waiting for you to say that word. Which one? Color. <laughs> I was wondering how long it would take you to come out of your mouth that the word color would finally evolve in our conversation. But I am really intrigued because I think a few weeks ago, I was reading an article that you had written uh, and and responding to some things on LinkedIn. And I saw this subtitle to your name, which was Color Archaeologist. And I loved the idea of color archaeology. And I really do want to get to that. But maybe for you know our listeners, let's try to put some context around this and frame up the conversation a little bit and talk a little bit about where you have uh, come from. I don't mean necessarily geographically, although that could be good too, but in terms of the relationships to the CMG, the color marketing group, and a lot of the activity that you've spent for years, because I think we met literally at the 50th anniversary of the color marketing group back in 2012. So uh, it's now in its 60th year, but let's sort of flesh out this a little bit. What is it? Who's involved in it? And, and what does it do? The color marketing group? Well, as the name uh, says it, it's a group of people that love color. And so it's a not-for-profit association. And uh, this year is the 60th anniversary of the association. And so what we do is we come together to forecast color two years down the road. And that has been the practice uh, for many years. Obviously, at the beginning, uh, Color Marketing Group was not forecasting color. The people who founded the organization, and those are the pioneers of the organization, they were representing various market segments, and they came from many parts of the U.S., and they sat together and they said, we need to talk about the connectivity between the science and the marketing of color. Mm. And how can we use the science behind the color to use terminology that is similar across segments. And so they started the organization and what they did during their meetings, they were bringing in their color collections and, and talk about it and compare it and talk about what are the colors that sell in the market, what are the colors that are not popular and what are the new introductions, etc. And then they decided to make like a roadshow of colors Hmm. and we're exhibiting colors from each of those organizations uh, divided by color family. And then they started forecasting in the late 60s, basically. And fast forward 60 years, now we have this amazing group of people from all around the world. I can't tell you how many countries, but many countries of the world. And they come together 
uh, representing various market segments, representing various levels of expertise from students to beginner to very uh, experienced, and they forecast color. So this is going to be interesting now because I love the idea of forecasting anything, which I think is, it's kind of like crystal ball work, you know, you're trying to understand, but it's, it's not really magical, <laughs> but I think forecasting is going to become increasingly more difficult in a future where things move so quickly, right? I mean, I don't know how, how long it takes before a forecast comes out, but I'm imagining a scenario where because the pace of our lives is so much faster it seems to me that forecasting a future state when we seem to be coming up on it quickly and then maybe passing it, you know, onto some next future state, it seems to me like forecasting would be hard to do. Or am I wrong about that? It will depend on the market segment. Even right now and even in the past, depending on the market segment, the the trend, let's call it for this specific talk, let's call it the trend, but not for the entire notion the trend has a life cycle. So the, for instance, if we look into the fashion industry, the life cycle is very short as we have four seasons, right, per year. Mm -hmm. So obviously the trend is changing every three months. Right. It goes very right. fast. But if we look into the build environment, uh, buildings, housing, etc., the trend is not that fast. David, you know this because you worked in retail environment. Sure. And so... The trend for the built environment is much longer. It could take 20 years, it could take 30 years, and even more. And so that pace is much slower. But in between the fashion industry and the built environment, we have every other single market segment. Mm -hmm. And the trend or the forecast will vary depending on the market segments. However, what we are seeing right now, because we forecast for two years in, I'll give you an example. We forecasted for 2023 last year in 2021, mm -hmm. and we already are seeing many of the forecasted colors for 2023 already now in the market. Interesting. So are they ahead of schedule? Is that what you're saying? Yes, there is an acceleration uh, of uh, the application of the forecast. And the reason for that, and that I think have always existed in the past, but it was on a slower pace, mm -hmm. is because any forecast that you put out there, there will be early adopters of that forecast. So the early adopters will always, you know, use in advance of others they will adopt those colors and start putting them in the market. And eventually, when others will follow, then you have an extended uh, application of the trend mm -hmm. of that specific color. So not all the colors you will see immediately. Uh, some colors you will, and some other colors will come even later. Some other colors will come after you forecasted for. So if we forecasted for 2023... Again, depending on this segment, the colors might be adopted in 2024 and 2025. We've had a pretty um, crazy few years, I think, through, well, the end of 19, let's say 2020 through 22 now we're in. I imagine, you know, you always hear these projections, the color of the year is whatever it is, you know, 
are those universally adopted across industries? Does everyone sort of get together and say, yeah, let's go where it's going to be Mariana's trench blue or something, you know, and that's going to be the color of the year or some sort of other thing. And that everyone sort of is in line with that. And is that what the color marketing group does is it sets an industry standard for what we all believe or various industries may think are going to be the color choices that people are most likely to gravitate towards? In the color marketing group, we do not do or adopt the notion of color of the year. Ah, okay. What we do is we identify within the color forecast, we identify a key color. And so the key color is different from color of the year. Color of the year, we see this a lot. Uh, obviously, it started with Pantone, but then after that, it was adopted specifically by paint companies mm. uh, when they do their they put out their color trends they pick a color that they believe it will be the color that sells and that will be based obviously on the trend stories that they have identified for their color collection mm-hmm. and i would say probably that works uh, like for 2022, we saw many of the major paint companies in North America, after they announced their color trends in various times of last year, we had many companies had the same color direction as color of the year for 2022. And that was a muddy green or a natural green, if you want, which is a new take on avocado green from the 70s. And it, so it, it became much more uh, like a moss green or whatever other name you want to give it. And the people who have been following the uh, color of the year, they know what I'm talking about. Mm. The notion of a key color in the color marketing group, what we do is we pick a color that will represent the mood of the entire uh, forecast or is an important color to the color stories, or is a color, for instance, that during the forecasting events have been submitted many times, like it came through so many times by many participants and it had a very strong uh, prompt to it to become a key color. And the idea of the, in general, the color forecast doesn't mean that you have to use the exact colors in the forecast. It's a direction, it's a color direction into the future. So depending on your market segment, you will apply the forecast and adapt it to your market. So if we say, for instance, that the direction is for muted greens and there are two colors in the muted uh, green space in the forecast, if you are in the built environment versus fashion, you might not use the exact same green, but you will adapt it to your industry. And that's the, the difference between color trend and color forecast. The color forecast is a direction for the future. And the color trend is what we see now in the market. So I'm curious about that, because if you say that the projections are usually a couple of years out, that's going to mean that, let's say at the back end or in 2018, 2019, the markets were up, people were prosperous, house prices were good, companies were making money, then a pandemic hits, and the, but the color forecasts have been already determined for what 2020 would be. 
and then the pandemic hits the whole sort of world falls apart emotionally we're all you know in stressed out states and i'm curious whether or not a what the color trends would have been during the pandemic was it gloomy and colors more muted and dark and sort of somber or were they brighter and more cheery because people need need hope how did that play out because this is this i mean i imagine market conditions and everything else are influencing the choices and trends of color so was there any sort of appreciable difference between the couple years prior to and the projections of 2020 and 2021 and what actually really happened during this time? That's a super interesting uh, question and point because, as you said, we usually forecast in advance, whether it's one year in advance or two years in advance. And when you are forecasting, what you have in hands is you have the past and you have the present, but you don't have the future. You are predicting something to happen in the future based on what is now, but also based on what was in the past. And that past could be anything between yesterday until 100 years ago. And it all depends on these stories and the influences that you are working with. And so when we forecasted for 2020, obviously nobody could have thought of something happening like the pandemic, and it was a global event. Mm -hmm. So when it comes mm -hmm. to Color Marketing Group, the forecast included bright colors, but it also included less than bright colors, like more subdued, etc. In a forecast, you will never have one single direction. You will have various directions because it depends on the color families. And again, it depends on the color stories that you're talking about. And I would like to say here that the color forecast is like the weather forecast. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes they forecast sunny and then all of a sudden it rains or they say it's going to be snowing and then all of a sudden you have clear skies because anything that might happen in the atmosphere can affect the, the weather forecast. And it's the same thing for the color forecast. Things might happen that you have not taken into consideration that might affect the direction of the forecast. However, even within the times of lockdown and the pandemic, we did not stop consuming color. Interesting. Because people were still buying goods and services, obviously in a different way, because we were buying online rather than going to the stores. We were eating food. We were using our clothes at home, but we were also living within our spaces that have certain colors. Mm -hmm. And the amazing thing is that the first part of the pandemic, let's say the first three months, everybody was like hypnotized. We, we didn't know what we were doing, we, we didn't know what we will be doing. And so, as you know, as everybody knows, uh, we got stuck behind our screens overlooking a, a wall or a partition wall or sitting in our closet working, right, yeah. uh, from our home or our home office. And then all of a sudden, after a specific time, let's say three, four months, you are looking into your screen, but there is this wall behind your screen. And people started getting funny from looking, gazing into walls that were beige or white or whatever the color was, right? 
And then in December, when we started open our, opening our doors and going out a little bit because people thought the pandemic was over, if you remember. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we noticed something that we in our lives didn't see before because we did not live other pandemics before. So we saw two currents in terms of color. We saw one group or one current that went into bright colors as a reaction to whatever they were seeing. And then we saw another uh, current, which was for subdued colors and, and like relaxing colors. And those two currents represented the mood of the people yeah. because some people wanted to relax after, you know, that period of time that was very harmful on on our psyche and on our bodies so they really were seeking relaxation and soothing colors etc so they started buying colors that suit them and then the other people that were like okay i'm done with this i'm done with staying at home i'm done with being doing nothing i need colors to fulfill me and to bring my mood up Mm. and those went for the bright colors is something really very unusual because the general preference is that people will follow a specific trend not it's either a trend or a counter trend but seeing two directions at the same time is very unusual but it seems like what you're talking about is that color has a pretty strong influence on our psychology, right? I mean, either our psychology influences our interest in the choosing of colors, products, paints, whatever, or the reverse may also be true, right? That if I'm in a certain environment filled with a certain hue, you know, a certain color, that it will also affect me psychologically. Let's, let's, sort of dig there a little bit because I'm always curious about the influence of color. Like they say, oh, if you want to feel hungry, paint, you know, be in a red environment or something like that because red stimulates your interest in eating. Is there a lot of truth to that? And and to what degree can color really influence how we feel? It's almost like the chicken and the egg. Which one came first? <laughs> did the psychology come first or did the color come first? And uh, obviously it would be hard to figure out which one come first, but we know that the color came first before the psychology. We know that color existed before us because everything around us, uh, since the sun became our sun, everything is is colored. So without the light and the sun, we wouldn't have color, right? And so in a world that is full of color, I would think that color affected the psychology, but it Color doesn't all only affect psychology. It also affects our neurology mm. because as human, obviously our neurology and psychology are interconnected and we are interconnected also to colors because we are, even if we don't notice it or a lot of people don't pay attention, we live in an ocean filled with colors. And so every day we have this interaction with our environment and that environment is colored. So definitely, whether we are affecting the colors or whether are affecting us, it's a two-way street. Mm-hmm. We are both inter-affecting each other. And the, uh, the important thing, and you know that, obviously, 
is that sometimes you enter into a room that you've never been to before. It could be a, a store, or it could be a friend's house, or it could be, I don't know, doctor's office or whatever it is, and then, or a dentist, and then you feel you, the first impact of entering is that I'm going to get the hell out of here hmm. because I don't feel comfortable. I usually say that in dentist's office. <laughs> I, I said that also at hospitals. Yeah, I've never really liked the color of dentist's office. That's my excuse. I don't want to go to the dentist. I can't stand the color of his office. <laughs> yeah, I have been to many places as well, like private places yeah. that I walk in and I don't feel I don't feel welcome or I don't feel comfortable, even though I love the people. Yeah. But it's just that I feel uncomfortable with, I don't know, it makes you feel uncomfortable. Maybe it's the color of the furniture, maybe it's the color of the floors, or maybe it's the entire color mood mm -hmm. or the color palette that they have used. It might not suit you at that specific mm -hmm. time. And then some other times you might walk in into the same room and you don't have the same effect over you. However, some other times you walk into certain areas and you think like, I want to be here for the rest of my life because it's such a comfortable or it plays a comfortable role in your psyche at that specific moment. And so, yes, there are colors that will activate uh, your appetite, that they are colors that will activate your relaxing uh, mood, uh, or they are colors that will just may take you to sleep. If I have to think about uh, us from, and I, I'm I'm gearing ourselves up to this idea of archaeology and anthropology because I'm I'm really curious about your self definition as a color uh, archaeologist. But I'm going to guess if we look at it from the anthropological point of view, our environments were naturally colored, meaning it was the nature of color and the change of the seasons and the color of grasses and trees and those things that were outside um, that didn't with the exception of maybe animals uh, that are could be very brightly colored, um, you know, there are variations on a theme of green in a forest, but, and, and then, then there are flowers, which could be pretty brilliant and parrots and, and those kinds of things, flora and fauna that can have brilliant colors. But generally I'm, I'm curious about the introduction of what I'm going to sort of qualify as new colors, like fluorescent, you know, pinks and things like that, that seem to be colors that would have never been necessarily found, at least in any sort of appreciable amount in nature. And whether or not the invention of those kinds of colors has also affected us. Like I couldn't stand in a room that was painted fluorescent pink uh, and, and, and feel at ease there. And I'm wondering if that has some sort of anthropological basis, the fact that we just don't come from a, you know, a long history of, of evolving through colored environments where the color palettes weren't necessarily as vibrant as that, unless maybe, you know, you're in fields of flowers all the time or something. I would say that with the technological advancements that allowed pigment producers to come up with uh, new pigments to be able to create uh, effects like you mentioned fluorescent or neon or mm. any other type of uh, holographic effects, etc. Without the pigments, we wouldn't, like without the availability of the pigments that is based on technological advancement, we wouldn't be able to achieve such colors in, in, the, in the visual spectrum, right? Uh, although we have to also take into consideration that 
in the absence of light, we wouldn't also see those effects. True. Because the idea of those effects or how those effects are happening is based on how light is hitting the surface of the object and how that light is being transferred, uh, refracted, or, or... Or light in the spectrum that's being absorbed by the, the physical properties of that material and what is being reflected. Right. There's a reflection, there is an absorption like the the object, the surface finish of any object will absorb some light, will reflect some light, and will refract some light. And depending on those three things, you will see the effect differently, right? And so you're right that, for instance, in the, I don't know, in the other ages, in the past ages, we didn't or we could not achieve or see those special finishes, Mm -hmm. but now we see them. And those special finishes are not really meant to be used on a wide surface, whether it's in your house or whether it is in any other environment. They are meant to add something different to whatever environment it is. And we should be careful into how we use those effects. Like they have to be used very carefully and as an accent rather than as a main color because they have different effects on us and Mm -hmm. they like you said they will make you feel uncomfortable you cannot be in a room that is neon pink four walls neon pink and be there for too long because you are going to get upset or you might get sick we don't know how that is going to affect a specific person, because not, none, all of us will be affected equally. Mm-hmm. Is the perception of color, the subjective experience of color consistent for people, or do you and I see red differently? I would say that each person have different perception of any color that existed under the sun, <laughs> because how we perceive colors is based on various factors. Mm-hmm. And those factors, even if you and me right now would be sitting next to each other looking at something that whatever color it is you and me are going to see different our personal experience of the appearance of that color will be different and that will be first of all because of how far away we are from that object uh how the lighting is for you versus for me Mm -hmm. Uh, is there any background color for that object we're looking at? Is that like, is that if it was red, if that red piece sitting against green or sitting against black or sitting against white, that will affect how we see it? How far away you and me are sitting from that object? And what is the distance between you and me from that object? And what's the angle of view between me and that object and you and that object? And we will never have the same angle of view because of our different positions sitting in front of that that object at the same time. Unless you move me and you sit in, in my seat, then you will have my same angle of view. And even then, David, you won't see the same thing because that also depends on your sight. And sight is very personal. The health of your sight probably plays the biggest role in all of this into how you and how I perceive a specific color. 
So I was going to ask you about this because I once read uh, in a book on color, and, I, and I'm I, I'm not going to do anything but paraphrase the idea. And the idea was that color itself doesn't exist. We're only able to manufacture the perception of color in our brain. And what we're doing is we're getting, I guess, our visual receptors are picking up various wavelengths of, like you said, they're reflected or refracted or um, of the light that is bouncing into our eyes. But how I see that color has everything to do with our neurobiology and virtually nothing else, right? To get your head around that idea that color doesn't actually exist, what exists is our ability for our brain to manufacture that perceptual response, uh, that subjective experience from what we perceive through our our eyes. Uh, am I getting that right? Is that how it works? What you're saying has a lot of truth, but I don't like to say that color doesn't exist. Uh, I rather say that without light, color doesn't exist. Okay, so that to me is great because I, now you reminded me of, of of growing up in my, well, when I went to architecture school at McGill, uh, university. And I remember having um, my uh, drawing teacher, Jerry Tondino, I remember the very first class, he said, you know, I'm not going to teach you how to draw. What I'm going to teach you how to do is see light. And in, and in the seeing of light, you'll understand all other things and, and, and scale and proportion and things will come. But if it weren't for light, nothing would exist, literally. I mean, if we didn't have the sun, nothing would exist because we'd be a little block of, of ice floating around in the universe. But it really is the light issue, right? Which is the level of absorption or refraction or those other things that then allows certain things to be color. So we're not actually seeing the color. We're seeing within a very, as I understand it, the the wavelengths that we're able to perceive across the spectrum of wavelengths uh, is really, really small. I mean, for humans. Yes, but going back to the perception of color, uh, that without light, color doesn't exist. Mm. We have two types of light, right? Whether it's artificial or natural. And natural is the sunlight and artificial is any other light source that we use in our houses, mm -hmm. from a candle to etc. Two LEDs in, in all their varieties. And what is important as well that I didn't mention when I was talking about how we perceive color and what will affect uh, the our perception of color and how no two people on the planet will see the same color in the same way, is that also the light source will play a huge role into how we perceive color. And uh, the same color will appear to the same person differently under different light sources. Right. That's why in, in, in the world of uh, science, when it comes to color, if you are really assessing a color, if two people are assessing the same color in different sides of the world, you will have to specify the light source for looking into the color. Mm. And uh, the most used light source is D65 which emulates the uh, daylight between 11 o'clock in the morning and 2 o'clock in the afternoon in a sunny day where the sky is blue. I'll remember that. <laughs> Let's say you're my client and I need to color match something for you and I did the color match under the 65 lighting and I sent you the sample, you will have to have a similar light source to really approve or confirm that that color is the correct one that you want. Because if you look at it under D50 
or under a candlelight, you're not going to see the same effect or you're not going to see really the color as it's supposed to be seen. And as is supposed to be seen, I'm putting it between brackets yeah. because supposed to be seen as something and how it is being seen is something else, again, depending on all the factors that we mentioned. So if I understand this correctly, then uh, a candle is going to burn at a certain and emit a certain wavelength of color. The sun emits a whole other broader spectrum of colors as, as sunlight is coming towards us. So if I take that red that we were talking about and I hold up that red card in candlelight, the wavelengths of color that are hitting that card don't include the full spectrum that the sun has. And therefore, what is reflected back from the red when looking at under candlelight is a different set of wavelengths than what might be reflected back uh, looking at that card under sunlight or your D65 light. Is that, am I getting it right over here? And therefore, is the perception of a, that red card under candlelight a different, a warmer or a different kind of red than it might be brighter or more vibrant in, a, in, in bright sunlight? Yeah, more, more or less, more or less correct. Because if we take a candlelight, the candlelight is one of the warmer mm -hmm. light sources. Mm -hmm. And warmer means it's it will reflect a yellow thing over the object that you are looking right. at. And so the warmer the light source, the yellowish, the appearance of whatever color you're looking at is, and the cooler the light source is the more bluish correct yeah. the object will appear and so the the d65 because it emulates the sunlight during the, those specifics that i mentioned it will provide you with a more accurate appearance okay. of the color that is not too yellow that is not too blue so we're always coming back as a reference point to what we'd expect in natural sunlight at during 11, 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. in the afternoon as being the reference point, right? That's the reference point with variations depends on a lot of things. For instance, even if you are doing an assessment behind a window, mm -hmm. a, you know, a glass window, that might also take away a little bit of the sunlight because uh, the sun will reflect over the glass and then go through the glass. Mm -hmm. So to control the environment in which we perceive color is very difficult. That's why only in a lab, we can control the environment. And obviously that's usually for business purposes when we are doing color matching and we are, we really want to reproduce the same color over and over and over again. But unfortunately outside of a laboratory that has the equipment to create a control environment it is impossible to control the environment. So if I had to ask you, give me a definition of color. What is it? How would you describe that? Are you looking for a scientific definition ah. or are you looking for a non-scientific definition? Can you give me both? <laughs> <laughs> Let's try that. Can you, I mean, or, or which one well, do you feel more, more comfortable with? Most, whatever. Well, I think that might not be 100%, but a more scientific definition would be that color is what we humans perceive because there is light hitting an object. So if there were no objects and there were no light, 
we wouldn't have the ability to perceive that color. Mm-hmm. This is just my my interpretation of the scientific mm-hmm. part. It might not be written in the same way I'm saying it. Okay. But if if we take, for instance, a personal interpretation of what is color, that will mean different things for a lot of people. So your interpretation of what color is for you might be totally different than what color is for me. For me, color is everything. If uh, if it wasn't for color, I don't see how my life will have would have evolved, or I don't see how my life will continue. Because as I mentioned at the beginning, we live in an ocean filled with color. And so from a very early age, and I grew up, I was born and grew up in Venezuela, where everything is colorful. Without knowing it, I got enamored with color. So to me, color is everything. Even my food, my food, I prepare my food on a daily basis. I don't buy ready-made food or anything. I have to cook myself. And if my food doesn't have various ingredients with different colors, I don't feel like eating it. Mm. And sometimes if I'm making a lentil soup, which I like a lot, and you know, lentil has brownish color. So what I do is I add a, not a colorant, but I add paprika to become red, or I add turmeric to make it yellow. So it's not just brown. That's really interesting, though. I love this idea that because of where you grew up in Venezuela, correct me, maybe I'm not quite getting it right, but because you grew up in Venezuela that was so colorful and a colorful environment was all around you, that you had this, unbeknownst to you, this love affair developing behind the scenes with color. And you did you come to expect those kinds of environments? And did you seek them out when you were, because you lived in different places of the world? Did you find yourself looking for places maybe... Um, unaware that that you were finding more sense of pleasure or peace in those those areas because they were highly colored? I always feel better and happier when I am in a colored environment. And so, for instance, living here in Canada in the wintertime, and it's not only me, we all know the, the winter blues, uh, yeah. spe- especially here in Canada. We have a lot of people that get depressed during the winter because we don't have color. And the more up north you go, the the worse the worse it is for people because obviously, and that's the lack of light again, and the lack of color. So when the spring comes, everywhere in the world you see people getting happier. You see people posting about it nowadays. People writing about it. You see the birds start chanting. Everything changes in the spring when the sprouts start coming out in colors. And in the summer is the like epitome of happiness mm-hmm. because of the colors that we have surrounding us, depending on where we are around the world, obviously. And unfortunately, we are not bound to select where we live because that depends at the beginning uh, on where we were brought to the world, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you could select, but... Uh, depends on your work it depends on a lot of things but those of us who have the advantage of selecting it depends on how they see color if it was for me if i wanted to select or if i had the advantage of selecting 
my selection will always be for a sunny country, a sunny place where I can see colors. And you know that I lived in Dubai for many years and the sun shines in Dubai every single day of every single year. It never disappears except at night. And you have the color palette is different because it's uh, it's a desertic area. Mm-hmm. But even in the desert, you have those variations of sand colors. So you have the the light beige to the a little bit darker beige. Then you have the yellow. Then you have the orange and even very dark orange, almost red. And so even in the desert, you can find colors. You know, I'm interested in this idea that we've talked about the color psychology, that color clearly has an effect on how we feel and maybe, and therefore how we might behave. But what about color symbology? You, you had mentioned in, a, in, in previously that there's this relationship between the psychology, but also the symbology of color. Can you dig into that a bit and, and explain what you mean by the idea of color symbology? Basically, If we want to understand the symbology, let's define a little bit the psychology. The color psychology is how we as humans are affected by color. And that's obviously is a neurological event because we are going to be affected neurologically to be able to get affected psychologically, right? Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to color symbology, it's not how color affects us, but it, what is the meaning that societies uh, give upon the color? And so that's for a specific color could have various symbologies depending on where you are around the world. And uh, for a simple example, if we take the color white for brights in the Western world, and specifically here in North America, it's the color that depicts or the symbology of that color is the purity of the bride. That's how it started many years ago and it continues. Mm-hmm. But if we go to China, for instance, the color that the bride wears is not white, is red. Because red represents uh, good luck and wealth and hope for the future as a new bride. So we see that For instance, the color yellow or the color orange will have different symbologies. If you go to the Netherlands, the color orange symbolizes the royal family. That's the color of the country. But if you go to India, it has spiritual meanings. Mm -hmm. And uh, in Christianity, it has different meaning, obviously. And each color will have a different symbology depending on the location, the geographical location. Uh, and the meaning that that society bestowed upon that color. Yet, with globalization and democratization of colors, I call it, where everybody has access to internet and can read a lot of things about a lot of countries, we see sometimes a symbology that is shared among many geographical areas. That's on the surface. Mm-hmm. But when you go and dig deeper, you will see the nuances in in the local symbology. I'm curious now, because as you say that, I think, let's say a color forecast suggests certain colors for, you know, three years from now or four years from now for cars. 
and it and the car manufacturer chooses to make their line of cars all variations on that color or provide that color within the color ways of available options for their cars but then that color actually has a very negative connotation with regards to color symbology in a country you know abroad and it's totally reasonable to think that that car will never sell because everyone attributes some negative connotation, some mystical, you know, negative value to that, that, that car perhaps because of the color that's in. And I can imagine that companies have to be really careful about the choice of colors that they use in developing products uh, to, and then trying to market. Cause you, as you said, we're in a global economy now where it just may be that a color just won't work in China or won't work in Iceland or in South Africa because it has, you know, a different connotation to what it should be used for, or what it represents. Well, fortunately, car makers, they have that knowledge and they understand that uh, the symbology of color for each mm-hmm. region. And so most of the pigment producers that provide the pigment to the car makers, they have extensive history of the color preferences among the region and among regions rather. And they do publish that information every year. Every year you can expect to know what colors have been. Unfortunately, that information is for the past. It's never for the future. Mm. But obviously the car makers know the future based on the past. Because for instance, if in, let's give an example, in Asia there is a preference for Uh, white and black and silver cars. In another part of the world, you will see different preferences. But generally speaking, when it comes to automotive, I would not involve automotive with all the other market segments because it's very specific industry where the pigments to create colors requires long time to be approved. They they need testing. They need so-and-so. And when you go into the local preferences for buying cars, there is a general opinion in various countries of the world that if you ride a red car, you will be spotted by the police or you will be spotted by thieves. For instance, in Brazil, they always prefer, everybody prefers to buy white colors or black colors, like colors that really are not noticeable among the other colors. So if you want to really protect your property in terms of your vehicle, you better buy a car of the same color than it's on the streets. So so these nuances, you really have to research them and get to know about them to understand the differences. But we have seen, for instance, Around 15 years ago, I was, I have been monitoring the automotive industry when it comes to colors for over 15 years now. But 15 years ago, only 5% of the cars sold in the world were red. And now it's between 8 and 9%. So there is a direction towards like using more red cars, but it's very slow. Color psychology? as a consequence of our neurobiology and, and the interaction between that symbology as a relation to the symbolic value of color within cultures in different geographic areas. I have 
loved the colors of Peru and South uh, America and um, Mongolia, places like that, where you look at these the, the sort of traditional dresses of people and the color and the weavings and the patterns, all of that's connected, right? So it's color, but pattern and, and the textiles are just beautiful. I, I look at some of these things and the hair weavings and ties is remarkable how color is used to express you know, um, human emotion and sort of ideological qualities. It's, um, it's fascinating. Yes, and if you take those countries that you mentioned, the colors, the traditional colors that they have are all based on their natural dyes mm -hmm. and the natural dyes that come from the extracted from the plants or from insects. And that's the amazing thing about them. Although you can reproduce them in an industrial environment, they don't locally, they don't want to replace them with industrial dyes. They want to continue extracting those dyes in the way traditionally have been done, which provide that really local texture and color and feel to right. that country when you visit. I remember working for a, a Turkish jeans company called Mavi Jeans, and uh, it was all about indigo. And uh, boy, mm -hmm. I learned a lot about indigo and how indigo was made or how purple was made by crushing seashells. And it's not surprising that those kinds of colors, like purple, for example, became connected to royalty, right? Um, and I guess in, in France mm -hmm. and places like that, because it was very hard to make those colors, you know, at, at scale. Uh, it's interesting. I love this idea of symbology. So psychology and symbology brings us back to archaeology. The symbology of a specific family of colors, let's say purple or yellow, etc. We are also seeing this evolving with color forecast. And it's uh, interesting that you mentioned that purple uh, was very expensive to produce, obviously, because it came from the mollusks, right? Mm -hmm. And purple was connected to not only royalty, but also to spirituality, because only the the people from the church plus the king were able to pay and use that color. And so going forward since then, we have always seen that purple is really related to spirituality and more or less to royalty because royalty, I mean, it evolves. The color purple can be produced extensively. It's not only limited to royalty. Mm -hmm. But right now, what we have been seeing with the color purple for the, I would say, six, seven years, the new symbology of the color is its connectivity to digitalization and to the metaverse, let's say, to everything that is digital and everything that is technological. And so this is the amazing thing about color archaeology. That just fascinates me. The idea that color symbology has evolved so that purple now is being attributed to or connected to technology in the metaverse. That's really interesting. That's really actually, that's really, really interesting. I, I'm very curious uh, about how that comes to pass, especially that color. Because you would have thought, 
you know, in, in the digital world, it would have been brighter, you know, more electric colors. It would have been that, you know, f- a neon fuchsias and, and pinks and greens and things that had that more electric feeling to them. But I find it fascinating that it's being attached to the metaverse. And of course, you know, on the podcast, we often talk about things like the metaverse or, you know, the world of technology mm-hmm. and immersive digital experiences. But I just find that fascinating. I don't know if there's any, there's no question in that other than that it's like a wow. And so we go back to the idea of, of archaeology. So, uh, and from the moment that I read this in your byline that you're a color archaeologist, I've it's fascinated me as an idea. So I'm hoping that you could describe how it is you came to the idea of color archaeologist and what that means for you. Well, it's very simple. One day I was sitting on a chair. <laughs> it just came to me in a flash and it was done. It was over. It was <laughs> it was perfect. You know, the idea of color archaeology or color archaeologist came to to be because the work that I do is very similar to the work that an archaeologist does. And so a, an archaeologist usually goes to a historical site called an archaeological dig or archaeological site. And what they do is they try to dig in that site to find fragments of the past. And obviously those fragments of the past, they take them, they analyze them, they analyze when, where they were from, etc. So they are able to identify the age of the artifact. And then based on that, the archaeologists can suggest the life of the humans of that era and how that evolves until now. And then based on that, we might be able to predict what's going to happen into the future, right? And so now in color forecasting, basically, we pretty much do the same thing. To be able to forecast the color direction, we have to understand where the color comes from. What was its connotation in the past, when it was used, how it is used today, and how it's going to evolve into the future. And when I understood that, that's when I came up with, or I turned myself color archaeologist because I do the same thing. And obviously up until then, and I think up until now, nobody is called color archaeologist except me. So based on that, I came up with color archaeology which is a trademark of Color Landing Studio, which is my personal company. And so color archaeology basically comes to illustrate or to describe the practice of color forecasting. And so it incorporates, uh, for instance, the skills and expertise that are needed to track and research the records of societal trends and to analyze them, to interpret them or how they are interpreted in the current times and to use them to predict how they will evolve into the future. If you're digging in the past, you still necessarily have to dig in the future, in the present, right? So you're uncovering all of the things that are influencing colors and you're in a way, digging into the future as well. So you're covering that those those three those three worlds of of the work. Exactly, is is almost like color archaeology is excavating the future, not the past, because the end goal behind it is to predict the future of color and design. 
going back to our initial, uh, one of the comments I made earlier, I think what I admire about that is the, it's a complex thing that you're trying to do. It's it's not, it's not easy. Like, I think we all, you know, go to Home Depot or Lowe's or pick up the paint colors from Pratt & Lambert or whatever they are. And we sort of think that those things just pop up and, um, you know, they're, they're, they're just there. But the amount of work that's gone into understanding the trends, right? I love that thing that you said. The forecasting is saying what the weather will be in next week, but the trends are what's been happening for the past five days, um, you know, and it's been raining. Um, but next week it's going to be sunny. So one is trend analysis or thinking about trends. The other one is forecasting a future possible event. That's hard work because I think there are so many factors. Like I'm just thinking, what are all the factors that are involved in trying to understand, you know, how to actually create a forecast? What are like, what specific things do you look into? And there must be a ton of them, you know, from polit political to economic to all, all kinds of things. Well, we look into many things that we can summarize into three or four areas. First of all is societal trends, mm -hmm. like how society is evolving, what is changing, are there any shifts, obviously. Then we look into memorable events, and the memorable, the memorable events could be economic events, could be like a social events like the pandemic. Uh, an economic event could be what happened uh, during the economic meltdown at the end of uh, last decade, beginning of this decade, right? Mm -hmm. Those are events that everybody continues to think about and they affect a lot of people. So then we have the political influences as well because that can affect society. And most importantly, and I think we touched on this at, that at the beginning of the conversation, is the technological advancement and also the scientific advancement because without technological advancement and scientific advancement in the world of pigments, we won't be able to achieve specific colors or as you call them, new colors, mm -hmm. whether it's a, a neon effect or whether it is a holographic effect or in the future and already started in the metaverse, how do colors will appear in the metaverse? Obviously, without technological advancement, we wouldn't even have a metaverse. Right. Those are the main factors that we take into consideration to predict the future of color and design. However, there could be many plausible futures, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So even with those considerations or those factors that we take into consideration, when you are predicting the future, you might have to look into the plausible futures that will come out of that past and present. And eventually we will have to set on one future, not many futures because the, you can't put in the forecast, okay, if this and this happens, this will be the future. If this and this happens, this will be the future. You will have to really figure out one of those plausible futures and make a decision. So you take the mega trends, obviously, and then you look into the macro trends. And then you look also into the micro trends and the micro trends are what is now in the market, those are basically the current trends, are the macro the micro trends, and the macro trends could represent one of the plausible futures. 
And obviously the megatrend represents a distant future. I'm curious, as you say that, about the idea that you spend most of your time predicting the future of color expression. Actually, I spend most of my time researching and investigating. Okay, well, <laughs> but still, for the purpose of predicting a near or not so near future in terms of how color might come to be expressed in some future state, I'm wondering that if I gave you a palette of color, would you be able to work in reverse and say, ah, yes, these colors were likely chosen from 1960 to 67, and then also be able to uncover, like the archaeologist, what likely would have been happening in that time that would have resulted in that color choice. Is that crazy thinking, or is that possible? It's not crazy thinking, because last week, actually, I made a presentation through a CMG webinar where I did an analysis, a complete analysis. It was called the Anatomy of CMG 2023 Color Forecast. Okay. And so in my analysis, I took the forecast for 2023 and I digged into the archives of CMG because we have history of colors forecasted since the late 60s until now. Mm -hmm. And I draw the parallels between 2023 and 2013 to see what were the parallels by color families. And then after that, I went into the colors and the total colors are 62. And I looked into how many of the 62 colors are making a comeback from the past. That means when, when they were forecasted before and why. And so I was able to showcase those colors. And then, obviously, the third part of that presentation was about new colors that have not been forecasted before by CMG members. Interesting. And that was fascinating to see the parallels between the forecast of 2023 and 2013, mm -hmm. because we had similar events happening. In For 2013, we forecasted in 2011, and that was we were still... In the uh, in the hit of the economic meltdown, mm -hmm. and and that was a global event that pretty much every country felt, and a lot of people were affected by it because literally you could not spend anymore, mm -hmm. and a lot of people uh, lost their money, as you know. And so, fast forward to twenty twenty three, that the forecast we did was in twenty twenty one last year, mm -hmm. which we were in the middle of the pandemic, and the pandemic affected a lot of people across the, the globe in, in very similar ways. And we could see the parallels in certain color families, how they, those color families are coming back and why, for similar, similar reasons. And we could also see the differences or the divergence in certain color families and what's happening with them and why. That's really interesting to me that you could uh, attribute certain emotional or cultural, you know, mass sentiment about certain things related to politics or economics and make some hypotheses about what might have been happening. I mean, let's say prior to 2013, if you went back another 10 years, you know, um, or another 10 years, another 30 years and, and be able to sort of 
determine at least the zeitgeist, you know, uh, of the culture at that time, what might have been pushing on it, and then look and say, oh, well, yeah, look at the politics at that time, look at the economics at that time, look at the, whatever it is, the issues related to health, you know, safety, welfare, um, you know, the, the cultural issues that were being expressed at that time, and be able to build this portrait, if you will, of, of a period of time related to its story and color which is really cool. And the reason I bring that up, which is kind of interesting, is, you know, I'm a painter and um, I'm doing a, a painting of uh, a an early jazz musician, Sidney Bechet, and he was playing a saxophone in this one particular reference picture. And I, I looked at who the photographer was and where it was taken in the year, and it was 1947. Because I use all black and white reference photos, I thought, hmm, let's do a search an internet search for what were the color profiles or the color trending colors um, for 1947. And so I went back and I was searching across the internet and finding multiple companies, paint companies and such, and then developing this bucket of colors that I would use for my painting that would be representational of that particular year. And there were similarities across pigment producers, you know, paint companies and, and those kinds of things. And the fashion and sort of the industrial design world were all using certain colors. And then I, I chose, you know, my palette from that palette of 1947. And it's a very different palette than anything I've used to date. And I thought, what an interesting idea that I could take these musicians, because I specifically paint portraits of, of famous musicians, and go back to those colors. And, you know, so maybe Jimi Hendrix would be all in fluorescent psychedelic colors. And Sidney Bechet should be in these muted blues and reds and taupey brown colors and... Um, or something from the early or late 60s, early 70s should be an all avocado green, you know, for example. What's so fun about having this kind of conversation is that it brings to light things and the relationships between these things that I might not have had before. And so I'm, I'm going to think, I'm thinking about people and saying, hey, folks, like when you walk into your kitchen or go to the appliance store next week to replace your toaster and you see all those toasters there, you look at the colors that those toasters have been made in, it's not an accident. It's a, it's a very well-considered um, choice of how those things are influenced by a myriad of influences across spectrum from, like I said, politics to economics to religious issues to cultural issues to, you know, pandemics and, you know, economic crashes. It's, uh, it's really, really interesting. Yeah, it is true. And it, as long as the data is available to draw the parallels between the now and the then, when the then is any time in the past, obviously, you can always draw the parallels between them. And uh, since you were interested in that, uh, one reference book that I use a lot is called The Anatomy of Color. It's, uh, it's written by Patrick Beatty. And it basically is the, the story of heritage paints and pigments. And uh, you will have you will find a multitude of uh, paints and pigments from the past. Amazing. And it has, I don't know how many thousand photos of paints and pigments. And you can always also draw, go and search for a color that is now and a color that was then based on the pigments. Although with technology, the pigments that were existing before they either don't exist anymore, especially those that were based on, you know, heavy minerals. They either the mineral doesn't exist anymore or the mineral is poisonous, so we don't use it anymore. 
the old colors can be reproduced with new technology, but you will never get the exact same color. And that's why sometimes also, I don't know if you notice this, sometimes you have bought a, a piece of clothing, I don't know, maybe 25, 30 years ago, or you inherited from your mother or grandmother or whatever it is, because it's, it's an important piece of attire. And then you want to buy the same color because you love that color, but it's, it's impossible. You will not find the same color. Yeah, You will find something similar, but never the same. I'm curious now, you have spent all of your career mostly in the world fascinated with color. Does it ever become less exciting to you to, to be surrounded by color? Like, do you ever just go, oh gosh, I just want to wear black and white. Okay, look, we'll just be done with the color issue here. Let's just be really simple. <laughs> I, I would guess the question should be, can it grow any bigger? Okay. The fascination, can it grow any bigger? Because with each project, with each day, the fascination becomes bigger and bigger. There is, at least for me, there is no getting bored of the colors. There is no getting bored of working with the colors and touch the colors and smell the colors and sleep with the colors. And so it's almost like Montaha and color is is one. That answer the question? I'll just say Montaha Hidefi. Thank you so much for opening my eyes to color more. I think I've I've spent in early my drawing years and painting years, I tended to stay with black and white because I always found color challenging. But through the work that you do with the color marketing group and and the work that you publish, the articles and such, um, it brings a whole new light huh, to use our um, our focus on without light, color doesn't exist. You know, to to being. So thank you for thank you for doing this and opening my eyes. It's been terrific. It was an immense pleasure chatting with you. I hope that your audience also enjoys as much as you have enjoyed. And anytime, I mean, I'm here to talk about color and to work with you about color and to find your next colors. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. It was indeed. Thank you, David. Next Level Experience Design Podcast is presented by VMSD Magazine and Smart Work Media. It's hosted and executive produced by me, David Kepron. Our original music and audio production by Kano Sound. Make sure to tune in for Dialogues on Data, Design, Architecture, Technology, and the Arts wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And make sure to visit vmsd.com and look for the tab for the podcast there too. Also, remember you'll always find more information with links to content that we've discussed, contact information for our guests, and more in the show notes for each episode.